0: Welcome to the Masters of Automation podcast series. In today's episode, we have Donald Sweeney and Marshall Seid, uh, the co-founders and co-CEOs of Ashling Partners, a technology firm focused on bringing hyper-automation to enterprises to help them achieve meaningful outcomes and enhance customer and employee experiences. Uh, So welcome. This, This episode is something that I... Long waited to have, <laughs> so I'm very excited to have you guys join.
1: It's been a life goal of ours to be on your podcast, Alex, so thanks for having us.
0: So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm honored that you guys are here. Um, so to, to kick things off, um, uh, Ashling Partners is obviously the largest hyper automation consult, boutique consultancy firm in North America and you both established a company that has a very uh, great culture and great uh, way to impact the enterprises all around the world by adopting hyper automation uh, technology stack. Um, but I think everyone wonders how you met, uh, what you were up to before, what led you to start Aisling and define the values and especially the Ashling Manifesto as well, I think influenced a lot of um, the people to feel inspired to join the company. Uh, so to to kick things off, um, let's start with Don. Um, how what were you up to before, and then what led you to uh, Kickstarter Ashley? And how did you meet with Marshall?
1: <laughs> yeah, great question. Uh, Marshall uh, responded to an ad in the newspaper. <laughs> so, no, so Marshall and I used to work together actually. So both of our backgrounds are are actually pretty similar. We've that we've both spent majority of our careers in process improvement, kind of precursors to process automation, really focusing on business processes, business process improvement. Uh, All of my career was really initially in that ERP space and then kind of expanded into an enterprise application, consulting, broader uh, footprint. But Marshall and I worked together basically the short version of a longer story there at our last company. And, uh, you know, what we really found was implementing accounting systems, implementing CRM systems, implementing budgeting and planning systems, All, although great, uh, were very challenged to actually have that tangible, measurable ROI. And, uh, and the other struggle that we had was if you implement an accounting system, the person who really doesn't benefit uh, in many ways from that new accounting system is the AP clerk like they're actually pretty against (laughs) the newest system. Uh, They had their way, they kind of got it down and they didn't really want something new. So uh, as we were talking, we started talking about this future of work and kind of moving away from data entry, data manipulation more towards more meaningful work. And uh, at that point in time, we had sold our company to a larger organization, I had stuck around uh, for some integration activity. Marshall had left, and, and he was working at Gartner at the time. Uh, I think I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> but uh, so he, you know, he was kind of on that if if you call it forefront of you know where the large companies were implementing kind of the newer technologies. And we would still get together and talk about what we would do next and all these kinds of things. You know, usually over a over a beverage at a uh, local bar or something like that, and uh, and he was saying, "Hey, this RPA thing, boy, a, a lot of companies are really leaning pretty heavy into this." And this was the same time that we were talking about trying to find something slightly more meaningful. So, uh, literally on the back of a cop- t- cocktail napkin, we we started Ashling Partners. Ashling is the Gaelic word for vision or dream. And our theory there is that uh, that vision that clients have had and companies have had for literally decades, trying to truly have efficient end to end process automation or just efficient processes can now come together, not just with that new ERP system or new, you know, whatever system you're talking about, but with this kind of consolidation of optical character recognition, machine learning models, uh, your BPM now called DPA, your, basically your long running workflows, your RPA, like all of these are now getting stronger, better. The cost of technology has come down significantly. The speed and improvement of technology has improved significantly. So that vision of finally having that uh, fully end-to-end efficient process, we felt was finally coming to fruition.
0: And, and Marshall and I think Dawn covered pretty much you, you guys' story. <laughs> but Sorry, Marshall. Is there anything that you can you can add there? <laughs>
1: comment
2: out that uh, this is probably going to be your longest episode yet. So <laughs> yes. whether, whether you are planning on that or not, it's going to be a very long episode. Uh,
0: no, I love it. <laughs>
2: no, I, I wouldn't add much uh, to that. You know, the only other thing I would say, uh, since you asked about, you know, just the founding of Ashling, uh, is. You, you basically start, we started Ashling with what we wanted the company to be, and also, you know, just as importantly, what we didn't want it to be. Uh, and so, you know, we, you mentioned uh, the manifesto. We crafted that before we even incorporated the company. Uh, and what we found is that a lot of the, uh, the value system, the principles we put into that manifesto, uh, you know, tended to be turned externally with our clients. So, you know, our business has changed. We need people that are versatilist and willing to be, you know, the Dar- Darwinism approach, willing to adapt quickly because, you know, change is always a It's just happening with faster increments nowadays with emerging tech. I mean, everybody's, you know, onto the next wave of uh, exhaustive speed, of, speed to outcome technology with open AI and chat GPT and large language models, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, we kind of embraced that and we wanted folks in a nucleus in a culture that embraced that. What we have found is that clients also want that so you know when you connect that to uh, you know more meaningful work future of work and some of the challenges from you know the macro economy from scarcity of talent and labor in the market uh it all kind of aligned and made a lot of sense you know i wouldn't encourage everybody to do it that way it just it worked for us uh to think about what we wanted from an internal perspective even before we looked external uh which you know we knew we wanted to be in this this Intelligent automation space at that point, but you know that's
0: the only thing I would add. And yeah, that's very interesting. And Don mentioned that the, the accounting software that are built for AP clerks are the ones who were the most resistant to adopt the new software. Yeah, and I, and I think that's one of the, the highlights of the future of work as well. Like the like the the adoption part of it, and and defining a culture both internally and externally where. People can develop the digital skill sets and adopt the software that is built for them. Um, this is really key. So, so based on that, and and, and starting now, Ashton, like you guys write, wrote the manifesto. You had a very good understand about process improvement, ERP, and the RPA, as well as the emergence of RPA because it was also um, the early stages at it. Um, how did you see the best ways to structure? this customer adoption and what are some of the things that influence the uh, like enterprises that are sold to stay innovative? And Marshall, do you want to go ahead first?
2: Yeah, I was going to hop right in on that one. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I think and it, it's, you know, some of the, some of, the, some of what I'm probably going to talk about here today is, uh, you know, buzzworthy. We hear it a lot in the marketplace, but I actually mean it. uh, you know i I think being outcome obsessed really helps uh so when we started the company and we're kind of looking at the right service offerings knowing that you know once again we need to we're going to need to change them because the technology is going to get adopted departmental first then cross departmental you know end-to-end processes then it's going to go enterprise-wide which is certainly what has occurred thus far uh but we really started the company you know really focused on you know outcomes as the North Star, which means you need to have an advisory function. So we started the company to be more management consulting-esque on, you know, future of work and how automation is going to you know, play a, a leading role in changing the type of work our human workforce does, while also helping companies that adopt early and in a broader way, be more competitive. Uh, and we kind of got pulled in uh, to more of that full life cycle plan, build, run, measure and improve. Uh, so, you know, starting with that that outcome approach and a little more uh, in a consultative way is certainly benefited because education is the key right now. And, you know, we're already proliferating. We started with RPA. Uh, and now, you know, if you believe Kartner, Gartner's uh, hyper automation uh, definition, I mean, there's eight capabilities that make up automation today. And it's going to grow. And you're kind of seeing people that uh, and software companies that really stay neatly into their lanes Start to slowly swerve into you know other people's lanes. You had RPA vendors start to swerve into the traditional OCR and IDP lanes. You, you saw them start to swerve into the process mining lanes. People are just swerving all over the place right now. Uh, there there are no lanes. There's basically one one lane now, and there's a lot of different cars on that lane. So. Uh, we've had to kind of evolve that pretty quickly and make sure that, you know, we're even more so acting as a great aggregator and, and building those multi-year roadmaps across multiple technologies while consolidating from a total cost of ownership perspective where we
1: can.
0: I think combining those those capabilities in an enterprise really benefit each other, like someone who actually leverages process mining ends up being able to build pipeline for automation or process, uh, improvement opportunities. Um, uh, don't they, you, you, had expertise in like process improvement as well, like in your previous companies. So like tying that to, uh, what Marshall said on building the advisory function, and then the capabilities on top of that to allow enterprises to better educate themselves and innovate themselves. What were some of the, Teams that you you told maybe the companies are really not doing well uh, and they could think differently um, or actually doing really well and and keep keep should uh, should doing more.
1: Yeah, I think there's a, a couple ways of doing that. I mean, one of the things that we try to do is leverage third party benchmark data, so it's not us subjectively saying, "Hey, you're doing well" or "You're not doing well." it's coming in and having them compare themselves to their peers, whether it's in the industry or size of the organization. And so really walking in and trying to identify continuous process improvement metrics, you know, these conversations really uh, work out well when a client has a continuous improvement mindset or a Lean Six Sigma kind of mindset, then this is great. I mean, they don't have to have that, but If they do, then they totally get it because you're walking in really first and foremost, trying to have business outcomes as Marshall was talking about. Uh, And then secondarily having a tool conversation or a technology conversation. But the technology is really just to be the vehicle to get from point A to point B. You really want the conversations with the client to be focused on where are we trying to go? We're at point A and we want to get to point B. What is point B?
0: Mm-hmm. and and to that point I think the starting from the outcome and then solution and yeah. then technology approach really helps them to frame how to solve their pain problems I think some customers also get um, pulled into the hype a little bit sometimes like for example uh, there's the AI hype there's a generative AI hype there's the blockchain hype at the time and then, Uh, And before that, it was RPA. Um, And I I think there are a lot of industry reports come out on top of a lot of noise coming up uh, in in the early on. But now RPA became intelligent automation, became hyper automation. So so to Marshall's point, that tech stack kept growing uh, for an enterprise. Um, So what are some of the things that you guys think um, is going to be like maybe maybe not 5 years from now but like 3 years from now so that they can anticipate better
2: so uh you know number one yeah 5 years is probably too long of a <laughs> uh, crystal ball prediction nowadays that's that's <laughs> number one uh, i think 3 years is probably as far as anybody can go at this point which you know brings me back to you know darwinism you, you, everybody's just got to be willing to adapt and, and kind of swing with the current uh, you know, when when you look at you know everything coming into the into the market today from a large language model perspective, uh, I mean, I don't think we've had a client conversation in the last month where it didn't come up at some point uh, until risk and governance is figured out in the enterprise. Now, it's it's great for you know you know creative uh, skill sets. It's great for individuals, but at the enterprise level, uh, I think it's going to take a little time from a governance perspective, to understand the credible sources, where the the models are pulling from, to be willing to allow your people to put potentially confidential and uh, compliant data back into a large language model like ChatGPT or BART or whatever. Uh, And so I think you're going to start to see a lot of adaptive governance models, what we would call adaptive governance models, kind of start to take root in the next three years in order to actually take advantage of this powerful technology that is absolutely something that people should be investigating and trying to consider uh, how to better leverage it. Uh, if you look at, uh, you know, how we think it'll actually kind of proliferate in in the enterprise, you're seeing all these uh, enterprise application providers, you know, start to provide an integration service to open AI, to, uh, you know, whatever your large language model of preference is. So I think it'll be more embedded type of conversations as opposed to standalone and, and pure replacement. Everybody always jumps to the you know the peak of inflated expectations at the at the very onset of a, a new kind of current of technology, whether it's AI or automation. or I remember when it was mobile, and then before mobile, it was packaged applications like ERP and, and CRM. Uh, but you know it tends to it tends to just kind of be more accretive as opposed to displacement. I mean, it happened in ERP where. You started with a you know accounting package, general ledger, AR, AP, and then you had a fixed asset module. Then you added a supply chain management, or if you're a healthcare organization, materials management module, and then you, you added the whole HR side of the house. And it just started to proliferate based on a technology stack, which was kind of you know containerized packaged application that had a a UI a good database layer and the ability to customize from a coding and studio perspective. I mean, I, I don't see it being much different. Uh, I just think the change will happen a little quicker with with what's happening right now in the
0: space. Mm-hmm. And Dolm, um, what do you think about it?
1: Yeah, I, I think we're very early on in the AI uh, journey. Although uh, Microsoft, with how much they've released in the last two weeks makes us feel like we're, we're pretty far along that journey. There's still a lot more to go. Uh, I mean, there's still so much data entry, data manipulation that people do. I I think if the question is, where do we see this in three years? I think it's that end to end automation, you know, ML AI driving a lot of components of that being, you know, in essence, the traffic cop of data and kind of moving the data through the process. But, you know, there are still people today who receive an invoice via email, an AP invoice via email, open up the email, open up the attachment, read the attachment, hit print, walk over to the printer, grab the invoice, walk back to their desk, log into the accounting system, and enter the exact same information that's on that sheet of paper that was on the email in the first place, right? So, you know, connecting a lot of those things and and having AI and ML start to maybe improve or streamline some of that process, and then improving the customer experience, improving the employee experience of that process, uh, you know, there's still a long way to go in a lot of the day-to-day activities. So I I think a lot of the plumbing is gonna be improved over time. Mm -hmm.
0: And And what is very interesting is the, the, also the vendors setting the expectations right Um so like in the I think if they sell and this applies to RPA process mining and then any vendor out there um, that works with tech sell that oh this is magic if you buy this you know you, you adopt it quickly and it solves all your problems and they all go away and then half the journey figure it out oh just cannot do that oh, I cannot do this and I think similar to maybe LLMs, there's that aspect as well, where there's so much unknown and there's so much hype to it, it's hard to do the reality check um, and of what it can accomplish. So in in your perspective, looking into, I think LLMs uh, standalone and also RPA as well, standalone and based on what we've seen over the past five to six years and how People's understanding and setting those expectations change over time. Um, what What do you guys think about it, uh, Marshall? Do you want to go first with this one? I see I you were nodding. I think, <laughs> yeah, I, I think
2: uh, you know, regardless of the tech, whether it's RPA, LLM, or you know, uh, IDP, process mining, uh, the the number one truth is businesses want outcomes. And uh, once again, I told I warned you I was going to be a little cliche in this conversation. <laughs> by the way. Uh, and I think what you see a lot of times is that you know some of the software providers, and I, and I find them to be very, uh, very instinctive and to listen to their their customers well. So they you know they they develop products products on their product roadmap and release features quicker than ever. They make acquisitions where uh, where it makes sense to fill some of the gaps and voids they have along along the automation journey, if you will. Uh, but I think a lot a lot of uh, software vendors. Uh, End up stopping a little short to value realized, so they they end at value theorized, but they don't actually get to actual value realized. Uh, and, and it makes sense, right? Uh, they have to you know put software on the streets in the hands of customers in order to have the ability to impact value. But uh, I think you are going to see a lot of organizations really focused on you know kind of the rollout strategy and you know trying to figure out a way to take something departmental or regional to global. Uh, using reusable assets that you might have developed in North America and rolling it out to APAC and, and using that as a vehicle of change for process as well, by the way. Hey, you got to do it this way if you want to leverage this type of automation. And here's the business impact that it's going to have, by the way. So it's worth doing. So change your process, right? You kind of saw this a little bit with cloud applications. Uh, I remember when we uh, started migrating Oracle People's on on premise ERP clients to Oracle Cloud ERP. And you told them, "Hey, you can't customize in People Code anymore. Uh, you have to actually adopt the cloud template that Oracle gives you, or SAP, S four Hana gives you." And it was a uh, it was an emotional conversation culturally for a lot of large organizations. They're like, "Well, you know, everybody likes the idea of change until it happens to them." Uh, and so, I I think the fact that uh, you, know, you kind of force people to think about change and to re-engineer, re-engineer their business a little bit. Uh, I think that's where people are right now with automation, where I think that the technology's there, the software vendors are there, the consolidation will continue to happen probably in that space, but we can't stop short of value. And I think you're going to actually see a lot of uplift in you know, big value realized case studies uh, where you know up to this point, you've kind of seen big use cases, maybe not huge program value, success stories. Uh, but you have a lot of the, a lot of programs that are kind of in that value theorized category, they're not to value realized quite yet. So, uh, you know, maybe I'm a little biased because I'm a service provider in that space, but uh, I do see that to be a challenge for many, many clients. It's like, hey, we have this huge opportunity, how do we actually get from point A to point B so I can actually claim that value? Because that's the, that's the beauty of this technology. You can actually, you know, touch the tangibility of
1: business value. You know, that's one of the values where we get really excited about things like process mining. I know we don't wanna get too into the weeds here on different tools and technologies and stuff, but you know, you think about process mining, it gives you an X-ray, if you will, of how a transaction flows through your system. And it does it for every single transaction. So, you know, you run a hundred thousand transactions through the system and maybe two thousand or twenty thousand. Uh, are running in one way and then another 20,000 are running in a slightly different way. Instead of A to B to C to D, it goes A to X to Y to C to B to D or something like that. So, uh, you know, you really can start to quantifiably measure, hey, if this was standardized and this were automated, you know, here's all of the steps that we would have removed from this process. And you can you can cost out uh, those steps, or you can figure out uh, speed to value, or auditability, cost reduction, or you know fees, or whatever the case may be. There's usually a quantifiable, measurable value there by you know tracking both kind of the before and after effects of of these activities.
0: And I think that's um, that that's very very valuable, especially like now I, I've seen. Uh, very recently, now process mining have their own magic quadrant. Right now, mm-hmm. um, they rank to vendors, which is a big big improvement to and the yeah. industry to call that out um, to to tie itself as a separate process improvement diagnostics to define where the problems are at and then solve them. Um, I mean, we, we could nerd out a little bit more about process mining, I think, uh, right now. Well, what, what do you guys think about that, um, them having their magic quadrant separately, and what does that really mean?
2: Well, I, I think it shows you, uh, if you follow the, you know, customer journey, which you know everybody should have a customer uh, centricity and, and kind of work backwards from there, uh, it shows you that one of the major challenges to overall business operations improvement you know, which, you know, of which automation is, is but a, a component, a capability for business operation improvement. It shows you that process visibility is still a critical bottleneck, right? And it's, uh, you know, whether it's through acquisitions or, uh, you know, different, you know, localized, you know, process requirements from a regulatory perspective or even a cultural perspective just shows you that, that businesses don't fully understand uh, their processes and, uh, at the same point, they're not connecting those processes to, you know, true uh, opportunities to improve through automation. It's still very siloed, but I think it just shows you that the, the customers are still very, you can't automate if you don't understand, right? That's that's actually a, a very dangerous proposition to start automating processes you don't understand for many, many reasons. Upstream impact, downstream impact, uh, you know, just bad customer experience, employee experience, supplier experience, depending on who your stakeholder for that process is. So to me, that's the big takeaway is that uh, you're seeing a lot of people, you know, gravitate towards something like process mining because they don't understand their their processes. And so they don't even know where they should be focusing their automation engineering teams or process improvement lean six sigma teams around. Uh, that being said, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of upside potential for process mining because what we hear from organizations is, hey, this kind of feels like you know data and analytics and you know, you know process analytics and uh, data mark for my you know order to cash process or procure to pay process, and they're not wrong by that, but they're also not thinking about it big enough where you have to take you have to take action orientation with, with outputs from process mining whether it's standardization, optimization, or automation, or all three, frankly, uh, if you're reimagining and, and doing some process clean sheeting, if you will, uh, you can claim a lot of value that way, but you have to act, right? And, and I think we're at a point where, you know, people understand that the, the value and the potential of something like process mining or broader process intelligence, but, you know, it's not connected yet to action, the RPA, DPA, low code, but we're getting there pretty quickly. Uh, and I, I think that's, what really excites us about, you know, what we've tried to build at Ashling is that end-to-end experience.
0: What do you think about?
1: You think about uh, process mining, sometimes called process intelligence, sometimes called execution management, you know, it's a lot of different terms, but going back to when Marshall and I worked uh, together previously, you would go in and you would interview people for a couple weeks to implement an ERP system. You'd go sit down with like the accounts payable person, just to kind of keep with the same examples before. And you'd ask them, okay, you know, how do you do accounts payable? And you would sit there and you'd map that out. Well, lo and behold, you just spent a couple weeks mapping all these things out and then you go start to build it. And when you build it, it's not exactly the way that they told you it was. <laughs> and, uh, And now you're going to give them a change request because they didn't tell you about these extra three steps that happen only 20% of the time. They told you the process as it occurs 80% of the time. And, you know, that's not a bad job on their part. It's just kind of human nature to focus on the parts that they're aware of and and maybe not give you everything. Uh, But that's, you know, that's a bad customer experience from a consulting services standpoint. And that's a risk on uh, on implementing something. Now, the the beauty of again process mining or whatever we want to call it is it gives you every transaction going through the system, so you can see the one percent outliers, you can see the twenty percent outliers. You, know, you can truly run this on an ongoing basis. I think you know where uh, process mining is really in its infancy is people don't see it as the ongoing execution management. Again, that more lean Six Sigma approach of continuous improvement. You know, they look at it as, okay, I built this and now I see how my activities are and now I'll automate those bad activities. You know, I look at process mining as something that you wanna look at month over month, quarter over quarter and make sure that you're continually improving and continually moving the, you know, the needle so to speak on standardization within your group on cost improvement, cost efficiency, depending on what the group is, speed to value, you know, better customer experience. Again, whatever the, the process is, you're defining that success and then you're measuring it through your actual actions, through the actual transactions that are flowing through the system. So if your activity is not getting better, well then how do you think you're, you're truly getting better on how you treat your customers just because you say so, right? So I, I think this is going to be, uh, a really big growth area i i kind of see it as like the brain of automation uh, or the hub central hub of automation and standardization and continuous improvement and then all things kind of you know resonate out of this so very very bullish on the future of the area
0: mm-hmm. and and i think the magic Run really a testament to that to that belief and and showcasing the process mining will evolve itself as its own plane. And then I really like the aspect that currently um, it's it's a little bit view as a diagnostics, right? Like it, it helps you to view how the process functions, where the bottlenecks are, and where the pain problems are at. But I think once they get to live transaction processing in those systems, where you get an alert on a... An outlier immediately, and maybe that trigger an automation, or that automatically change, or or um, ping someone <laughs> in the in the company to take an action on. I think at that stage it's a really that end-to-end process um, innovation uh, in a way. So which is really fascinating. Um, I, I can talk about this a lot too. <laughs> <laughs> it's a a really, really uh, important aspect of it. Um, So I I, I like to take the discussion to a little bit of um, something that's been evolving over time with, I think, AI and um, automation coming into the uh, people's job descriptions and then changing their roles the way, I think, the skill set also change over time. So like, for example, now, um, people are expected to write great prompts to interact with an LLM. Um, I think similar to be able to write in great prompts to ask a question to Google uh, to give us a search query. And I think from the other side aspect of it is the, is the automation, uh, where, where someone interacts with the bot themselves to, do, to automate their tasks with human in the loop. So as this evolves over time, um, and now I'm coming to the question part. <laughs> uh, well, what do you guys think about more of the ethics of AI uh, discussions, and, and 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 what does that really mean for an en- for an enterprise? I think I think there's meaning for overall to be careful about, um, um, in in general about not being prejudgmental in the way AI predicts, but. Oh, from an enterprise perspective, um, what do you guys think about it? Marshall, do you wanna go first with this one? You give me the
2: big philo- philosophical, <laughs> question, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, you know, look, I, I, think, uh, I, I think this is an evolving area too. Uh, AI ethics is certainly something that uh, I think will be a growing field, by the way, when we're talking about, you know, fields that'll actually grow and expand. Uh, Based on some of this emerging technology stuff that's coming into the landscape, I think AI ethics is a major one. Uh, you know, AI trust is is another kind of topic you're hearing a lot about nowadays. Uh, I think it. I think people will start with understanding what data sets are we going to be feeding to an algorithm, uh, and if it's financial and transactional data sets, I mean, I don't know how biased that can be, frankly. Uh, at a certain point, it's, it's not going to be that biased. Uh, it's when you start, you know, bringing it into hiring practices uh, based on historical data sets. Hey, maybe we've always had biased hiring practices, as an example, and we're making our, you know, future AI algorithm even more biased because all we're doing is feeding it our own historical data set. So, you know, I, I think there's going to have to be scrutiny on the data sets, which is why I think it's going to take a little time uh, for, you know, something like a chat GPT to really uh you know be used at a at a very macro enterprise wide level because you just can't predict the type of bias that has been fed to that large language model yet. I think it'll actually kind of condense before it expands again. Uh, but I do think it will expand eventually, right? So uh I think it's a I think it's a question that nobody has an answer to, and if they say they do, they they are probably not being Humble enough in regards to you know truly thinking about all the tentacles of implication that are out there, uh, but we do need to you know have that as basically a stage gate. I mean, you should think about that in testing if you're about to deploy a ML model. You know, what is the data set? What is the the business problem I'm trying to solve? Does that business problem have a lot of qualitative, subjective data? on feeding it based on history. Do I think my history was biased? I mean, there's just it's basically, there's not going to be an answer but there does need to be a, a, an ai decision
1: framework before you deploy anything in the enterprise.
0: Mhm. That's so a that's a very good point. What do you think, Don?
1: Yeah, I think ai decision framework is the key. Uh maybe my first thought is you could probably do a whole hour long topic just on ai ethics. Yeah. So there there's a there's another one for you. Uh but You know, we struggle with, and and people in general struggle with, okay, if the ML model is going to use the data that you gave it, okay, well, what's the bias in the data that you gave it? Or, you know, by nature, people evolve and change over time. You know, how I thought and how I acted two years ago is different than now, let alone 20 years ago. And if you are creating a model by nature, the model is static uh, on the data that it has, and it's not expecting somebody to change. It's expecting that data to be repeated, and so if you know XYZ occurs, XYZ is likely to occur again. Well, maybe, maybe not. You know, there's I, there's just a so much loaded into you know AI ethics and, and bias and, and all these things. You know, the the language usage uh when you're looking at resumes uh they talk about uh you know how people are selected in the ai models uh in viewing resumes based on the language used in the resume versus uh you know the school you went to or the grade point or the work experience or these other things so there's just so much loaded in that question but um i I think that's a, a huge area for growth and development and I think uh, we already know people coming out of college with that as a degree, AI ethics and, and I think you'll see more and more people coming out. I think that is a, a growing field. yeah, the only
2: the other thing I'd add just listening to Don Alp is that uh, you know there's another term AI explainability. Uh, you're starting to see that get embedded in some of the you know the data science and and ML building platforms. Uh, and if you can explain you know why, the conclusion was reached by an algorithm or why we have a certain percentage of confidence in in our uh, kind of our output from a ML model, uh, then you start to be able to think about putting more of this in production with confidence and with, you know, non-biased in mind. So AI explainability is a, a, a theme, a key word on top of AI ethics that I think you'll continue to hear more and more about over the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, thanks, Marshall. I think I went off on a diatribe and didn't really get to my original point that's that's the point is you need to have transparency and trust in your ai models or it's not going anywhere so knowing why you got the response you did and trusting uh the response because of that inputs is is really how ai is going to uh become pervasive across all of these areas
0: yeah that's that's very interesting especially like a lot of uh, like even the people who built these algorithms don't know why the the output is that way. And, and that leads to the data, that leads to, I think, your, to your guys' point about AI explainability um, of, of the concept. And I've seen, I think today, it was yesterday as well, um, now people are collecting signatures to maybe to say, let's pause this movement a little bit and then maybe figure out the regulations, and then maybe the the explainability aspect first before it scales to, to the rest of the world. Um, this is again all, all one of those things I think that can have its own episode. <laughs> to, to
1: well, and and uh, you know, again, if you're looking for episodes, I mean, Chat GPT, everybody's talking about it, and it's kind of the you know the uh, cocktail party conversation du jour right now, but. Two weeks ago, it was the solution to like every problem. And now already only two weeks later, you've got corporations saying we can't use that because we don't know the data that went into it. We don't know what we're going to get out of it. And frankly, we may not want to share our proprietary data into that model because then the public has that data. So right or wrong, you're already starting to get uh, a lot of people moving away from that due to the lack of transparency. So it just goes back to further Marshall's point.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I I absolutely agree with that. Um, And I think one aspect of it is right now, the, the integration piece, and I will tie this to a little bit more on the like enterprise process improvement as well. I think from the integration standpoint, it's easy to integrate. So people adopt very quickly and and then try to find an application use case. I think similarly for like RPA vendors, for example, with the with the citizen development, they had a user interface that's easier to adopt for people to be able to build automation. And obviously it doesn't function as near to AI because it's much more cognitive there. But in I like to like take the discussion to a bit of the movement of citizen development. And and your perspectives around how companies can start adopting it, so it's not only the like the core CRPA COE technical team who knows how the ERPA to function, but maybe citizen developers to assist with large process automation or task automation. So the I I heard some people say it doesn't work. Some people say it works great. Um, what, what do you guys think? Like, and then why do you think some people say it doesn't work? Maybe they, why, where are they seeing the wrong? And where do you guys see it be the most successful? Marshall, Marshall do you want, what do you want to go first?
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, somewhere in between is my answer uh, in regards to those who say it doesn't work and those that, you know, think it's the, the next coming, right? So yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you can have a sit dev program without a centralized program, and I don't I don't think you should have a centralized program without without at least considering a sit dev program. Uh, and it, it depends on the maturity of your organization, the structure of your operating model. There, there's a lot of inputs you got to think about. Uh, I think one of the challenges, maybe starting there, that you see with sit dev programs, uh, is the fact that I go back to my outcome statement. It's hard to measure business value when you know it's ALP, you know, creating something just for him based on how he does his daily job. Uh, You know, when he grabs his cup of coffee, he runs a, you know, attended automation really quick. Uh, And it's not scalable to everybody on Alps team, everybody in Alps department and across the globe of Alps company. So I think business value uh, is something that still needs to be addressed with sit dev programs because they tend to be more groundswell, bottom-up programs. Uh, We view it as a spoke to the hub, which is a more centralized program, where it should be governed by the centralized program. But, you know, there has to be a degree of uh, flexibility from executive leadership that is funding a SIDDEF program to say, hey, in the near term, we might not have the same value drivers, the same value metrics that we expect out of our, our hub, you know, our professional team. Uh, but we want to, you know, we want to incubate this a little further. Our experience is that nine out of 10, you know, quote, unquote, named citizen developers drop out of a program. And it's because they have day jobs. So in, until, you, uh, until you truly, uh, you know, get folks to you know, have the ability uh, throughout their, you know, work week to actually dedicate on that, you're, you're going to probably see mixed results, Uh That being said, you do wanna have kind of proactive programs, training academy. We've set up a lot of these academies. Our take on it is that you're probably gonna see more citizen consumers rather than citizen developers. And and that's what no-code is, is you've got, you know, you've got your professional developers using low-code tools to get to, you know, outcomes quicker via automations. And, you know, based on componentizing those automations, It could be a drag and drop marketplace potential for a SIT Dev to consume depending on their persona, their role, their departments, their need, their applications they have access to. There's a lot that goes into it. But, you know, certainly uh, I still feel like we're uh, very much at the beginning stages of seeing, you know, full blown SIT Dev programs, you know, really show quantifiable business value at
1: this point. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. I don't know if I really have much to add from that. I think there will always be a need for a corporate governance, uh, corporate yeah. basically building of the Lego pieces, if you will, and then the citizen developers will largely assemble Lego pieces that make sense for them uh, to have a bespoke automation or a bespoke assistant or whatever to do their portion of uh, their role. But there's still gonna be a need for a lot of the building of those blocks and building of the governance and everything else if it's truly gonna work. It's gotta be simple and and it's it's gotta be valuable, right? right? If it's simple and valuable, citizen uh, development works. If it's not either simple or it's not that valuable, it doesn't work, (laughs) so. And and with standards and frameworks in mind too,
2: right? Because you have to think about you know long-term technical debt i mean somebody's got to support that if if it breaks you know do you think the citizen developer is you know going to be the one that re-engineers that all the time no. they're going to be calling somebody right so i, I think that's a cio's fear of sit programs is they inherit that that technical debt potentially and if it's a if it's a lot of technical debt that's something that they might not be prepared to inherit quite yet
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, the measurability, the value part is quite interesting as well, because they are typically task automations and, um, like me picking up my coffee and, uh, <laughs> or like starting a report yep. and, 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 and measuring that and driving, tying that to the full business is really, really, um, get, gets tough to do. And, and to your point, the technical depth is an interesting one as well, then if someone Is a citizen developer, is that their side gig or is that part of their job? Uh, I think it's there, that's where things break.
1: (laughs) I think at some point in time, this matures into not needing to be a specifically measurable business value, but I think we're, we're quite a ways away from that. So, you know, everybody needs Microsoft Excel. But you can't quantify if you didn't have Microsoft Excel, you know, how many hours you would have to spend doing other things. It's just, it's a part of your job at this point, right? Or Word or, you know, whatever, uh, email, whatever example you want to use. I think at some point in time, a digital assistant and, you know, some kind of uh, citizen development is just part of everybody's job, right? You now are going to take these three components and connect them together so you don't have to, manually do that uh, every Monday but it's just part of your job to do that. So it whether you call it a side gig or whether you just part it call it part of your day job, uh, I, I think we will eventually get there. We're certainly not there and and not there in the near term.
0: So w- one thing I wanted to ask you guys is so we talked about end-to-end experiences and changing the process to drive the most value. And we talk a lot about uh, employee experiences, the customer experiences, and there's the payer experience, the patient experience, and and it it keeps going on. And obviously this speaks to its own industry and like how the definition change over to based on the industry. But how would you guys define an employee and a customer experience for an enterprise? Don, do you want to take this one first? So maybe, re- sorry, repeat the question? Repeat. I didn't really follow <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, so how, how, how would you guys define employee and a customer experience as a, as a benefit driven by the automation?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, there are hours back to the business as, as a type of benefit. Uh, separate to that, there's the customer experience benefit. So, yeah. Uh, People sometimes use the word frictionless customer experience, right? A lot of the technology companies use the word frictionless, uh, in their buyer journey. So, you know, you want as positive of a customer experience as possible. That means making it simple to order from you. That means kind of the Amazon experience where you are suggesting other things based on, you know, what you've previously purchased maybe even suggesting when it's time to purchase again based on kind of reviewing your purchasing trends. Uh, That's all part of the customer experience. Same thing with employee experience. Uh, You know, employee experience now is about making sure that they get answers to their questions when it's convenient to them, not just when HR is uh, working from eight to five or something like that, uh, or getting their questions answered on their benefits and, you know, whatever other examples you wanna have. So these are all going to eventually become table stakes. You know, an employee is gonna work where that is provided versus somewhere else where it's not provided. Uh, So I I think it's all a measurement of success. There are different types of measurements of success when you're talking about automation uh, and what's important. And that's one of the first questions you ask going back to the very, I think first question about Ashling was, you know, driving the business outcomes. This is what we sit down with our clients and and kind of first ask is, what's important around this business outcome? What, what are we trying to achieve?
0: Marshall, what do you think things are add there? I
2: hit, uh, my keywords, <laughs> which is usually frictionless, and, uh, you know, you gotta do it when, when it's convenient, regardless of who your stakeholder is, employee, supplier, uh, customer. I mean, the, the only other thing I would add is, if, contact center to give you an anecdote, right? Uh, I don't view it as, I don't view automation, uh, you know, being just about reducing the average call time. I mean, we all work so hard to get new customers and clients. So, uh, you don't want to automate it so that the experience is worse or even neutral. You want it to make it better for the the customer. And if it means shortening the call time or, you know, giving them, you know, a, a mobile... You know, automated workflow experience that is more convenient, great. But you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't automate it down to the point you, your value drivers change is the point. Uh, that is a great time to service your current existing clients, which we all know is the 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 cost to service a lot lower to your existing clients than it is to for any net new clients. So you should take advantage of that and wow them with the experience. And same goes for your employees and your patients and your nurses and whatever industry you're in. But, you know that would be the one piece because I think your value of drivers have a different index. I think it changes slightly from a waiting perspective, and, and let's not take it. Let's not lose sight of the fact that uh, it's not a cost out when it comes to customer experience. We've got to we've got to improve experience through automation,
1: not you know
2: trying to remove any human empathy to that experience.
1: That's a that's a great answer, Marshall, and I I love how that kind of almost brings the conversation full circle where. You know, we started with why we started the firm and about moving people into more meaningful work and the future of work and all these kinds of things. You know, what Marshall was really just talking about there is if you're in a customer service area, it's not about solely cutting cost and driving efficiency. It's about empowering that person to do what's truly meaningful. And that might be spending some time with the customer, right? It might not be about just getting off the phone. It might be about actually building a relationship with the customer and then automating all those other tactical activities that they spend their time on. If if you could remove 70 percent of the administration uh, and then that remaining 30 percent becomes the 70 percent where you're actually engaging with your clients, you're probably going to have a better client base or you know customer base.
2: Yeah. And the response, the responsibility does squarely uh, fall on executive leadership, though. To make that happen, right? Because you know some of the KPIs we see out there right now are it's it's, it's really uh, it's really about cost out, which you know there can be an element you can deliver more effectively and more efficiently. But you know just calling out the fact that executive leadership needs to have that perspective, which is why we're very big on making sure you're aligned to corporate objectives, uh, or else you know you might be you know thinking you're not going to fall out of the park with your automation program, but you're, you're frankly focused on the wrong KPIs and metrics.
1: In using using two examples, uh, I won't use names in the first one, but, you know, how many people enjoy calling their cable company or, or their utility, right? It's usually a pretty painful experience because they've tried to automate and cut cost out of that experience. You got to sit there and hit your five and then your nine and then your two and then enter your phone number and do all these things before you can actually talk to somebody. They've cut so much cost out, it's a negative experience. Yet, if you call Apple customer experience, it's a very positive experience. You kind of want to hang out with that person. Like, they're super smart, they're knowledgeable, they're friendly. Like, you know, I don't know, maybe it's me, but I kind of like hanging out with the Apple person. So uh, that's a really positive customer experience, and therefore, they're a premium brand. You know, reinforced by that customer experience. Nobody considers their utility or their cable company a premium brand.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that really brings it home, um, Like especially the understanding the how to design the program automation and driving value and that outcome is meant to be employee and customer experience. And that doesn't mean only time savings, but it means actually bringing great value and a successful outcome to your end customer who ends up, really like, or, um, come to be a repeat customer or loves to chill at Apple store like Don <laughs> or myself. I enjoy that as well. <laughs> so, you th- so that, that's, yeah. <laughs>
1: you, you'll see me as the old guy just in there playing on the iPad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's it. I want to thank both of you for taking the time to join the call and share your perspectives, experiences, and opinions. I'm, I'm I'm really honored to have you both. So I really appreciate this time. Thank you very much for, for joining.
1: Pleasure is all ours, Al. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.